26 degrees, coastal fog and one or two light rain patches this morning and tonight. The outlook still humid and foggy in the next couple of days. It's 24 degrees, the humidity 84%. The news from RTHK. Hello, this is Jim Gould here on Backchats. And hello, I'm Rainbow Leung. On today's programme, we're talking about her proposals to increase uh, public hospital fees. The Health Secretary, Lo Chung Mao, recently suggested implementing higher charges for non-emergency patients visiting A&E departments to lessen uh, pressure on services. Currently, patients are charged $180 regardless of how serious their cases are. Under a proposed tier system, cases deemed non-urgent could be charged fees similar to those of the private sector, with health authorities hoping this will encourage people with mild cases to seek treatment at outpatient clinics. But some patients' rights advocates are concerned that such a move could deter the public from seeking treatment. The government has also announced that users of the elderly healthcare voucher Greater Bay Area Pilot Scheme will now be able to use the services of another seven medical institutions in neighbourhood cities, benefiting 88,000 elderly Hong Kongers living in the Guangdong region. So what do you make of these developments? We'd love to hear from you, so do call us on 233-88266 to join the conversation or WhatsApp us on 68998518 or comment on our Facebook Facebook page, whoops, or email us at backchat at rthk.hongkong. <laughs> and uh, after 9.45, we're talking about Singapore's plans to require departing airline flights to use an increasing amount of sustainable fuel by 2026 or from 2026. Uh, joining us now for our main discussion on the line, we have uh, Dr. David Lam, uh, legislator from the Medical and Health Services uh, constituency, and also uh, Dickie Chow, head of health care and social innovation at the Our Hong Kong Foundation. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, uh, Dr. Lam, perhaps uh, we could start with you. Good morning. Good morning. So um, what do you think about this uh, proposal to um, increase uh, the charges for people visiting A&E departments when uh, they don't really need emergency treatment? Now, we are talking about uh, a possible so-called abuse of the emergency department by some of our residents in Hong Kong. Mm. So, like, talking about someone who goes to the emergency room, wait for seven hours to treat for a minor condition, who would do that, waiting for seven hours? It's probably very, very few people would really kind of abuse the system that way. Uh, more often, we have people who think they re who genuinely think that the condition is urgent and serious. That's why they go to the emergency room. And very often it happens um, outside office hours where they have little choice. Now, so before you increase the fee of emergency department, we must make sure that our residents in Hong Kong have a choice, have an alternative. The choice is there in the daytime. They can go to the family doctor. They can go to the general outpatient clinics in case they are they belong to the underprivileged. Mm. But what about in the middle of the night? If you have no choice, people will just come, pay more, wait seven hours, receive that treatment, and it benefits no one. Mm. And if you look back into history, when we last increased our uh, emergency room fees, has there been a significant drop in the number of attendances 
It doesn't seem so. So first of all, is why are we trying to increase the fee? If that is to um, um, lead to a bit of better tri triage of patients, so that someone who finds themselves not in a dire condition can go elsewhere, then first of all, start with giving them a choice and letting them know they do have a choice. And thirdly, supporting the community, with doctors and other people there, um, so that they can provide a service such as um, they can have access to, say, a subsidized blood test, uh, subsidized x-rays, which is the case in the emergency room. Hmm. So would that involve like a, an improved uh, triage uh, system? Because uh, at the moment, uh, pa patients go to the emergency room and they're put into one of five categories, isn't it? I mean, it w w would it also be possible to advise somebody if they, you know, if they don't need uh, urgent treatment, if they can you know, come, come back the next day or, or you know, go to an outpatient clinic or something like that? They are doing that already for mm. many, many years. Mm. So people are triaged, and then the triage nurse will tell them, hey, mm. sir, you belong to category four, mm. that means it's not really urgent, and if you don't want to wait seven hours, eight hours, you can go to your private doctor, your family doctor, mm. or what about the general outpatient clinic? Now, the problem here is that our general outpatient clinics are always full. Just full to the brim. So overflow cases go to a and &E. Now, this, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. We're talking about when our primary health care system uh, overflows, the patients go to a secondary or tertiary health care system. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is to increase the capacity of primary health care, not necessarily the GOPC um, uh, capacity alone, but the entire primary health care. That's why we are promoting primary care doctors or family doctors. But then they do not have enough support as you have in the emergency room. What about if a patient needs a blood test? If you go to the private sector, uh, you have to pay full fee. But what about if it is subsidized by the government? Partly. Of course, now, I'm not saying the government should subsidize everyone for the blood test. No, definitely not. Uh, subsidies should be according to necessity. Um, if you look at the chronic disease co-care program rolled out by the government recently, it subsidized everyone about 45 years of age. Um, well, this is one way of doing things. But if you want to fine-tune it, you can actually um, subsidize only those who apply for a subsidy. And when they apply for the subsidy, when they say they register for the family doctor, then there should be a kind of an assessment. And of course, if they are already on other uh, subsidy schemes, then you can waive that assessment. So in that way, we can really divert our valuable resources to those people who need it. And in the community, we can provide a lot of services, a lot more services, if such subsidy is well used and directed to those who really need it. Dr. Lam, your, your view is that increasing uh, these fee hike proposals isn't really going to deter people from A&E. Um, but, but then the government is thinking about it quite seriously. So, so what's driving them? Is it merely just to fill up the Treasury coffers? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, it's, not, it's really not about cost recovery. The average cost of an A&E attendance is like 2000 Hong Kong dollars. And if you increase the attendance fee to like $400 or $500, it's too far away from uh, cost recovery. It is really a way of trying to triage people better. As I just mentioned, we need a choice. If people have a choice, then they can go elsewhere. In the daytime, 
kind of it makes sense. It makes sense because if you go to see the A and E doctor, uh, you have to pay four hundred, and if you go to see a family doctor, maybe three hundred fifty, and you don't have to wait, then there may be a a uh, a better way of diverting patients to see the family doctor. But another issue that is not really touched, but it's also a cost issue. It's what you what the patient receives at the emergency room. I've asked an emergency room consultant some time ago how many emergency CT brains do they do in one single day. The answer is 80, just for the A and E. Now there are 400 attendances per day in A and E. Half of those are classified as non-urgent, so we're looking at 200. And out of the 200, not all of them have had injury, but you have 80 CT brains a day. Is that too much? There's too many, definitely. So why? There are lots of reasons behind it, but if you add in a co-payment system for people who doesn't fall into, say, a protocol for head injury, a protocol for head injury, then they have to pay a certain amount of fees, like $500, $400, then that deters people who doesn't really need that CT brain to ask for a CT brain. Now, but that comes to a protocol issue. You need a protocol for head injury. If someone falls into the protocol, they receive the CT scan at no extra charges. That's what I propose. But if someone who doesn't fall into that protocol and they insist to have a CT scan, then you pay extra, so a co-payment. Now, that kind of will deter people from misusing uh, valuable resources in a &E. It's something we can further think about rather than to... They put a cutoff. If you are category four, then you go to see, uh, you pay more. Now, that is not really a very good way of doing things because you put the burden on the frontline nursing staff who does the triage. And triage is not the full consultation. So it's always not 100% correct. Sure. But if you increase just the daytime uh, attendancy, uh, to something similar to private sector, well, that's uh, arguable. But yes, in the daytime, it may help. But in the nighttime, you must give people a choice. And if you talk about what is the uh, average fee of seeing a private doctor in Hong Kong, again, that's a wide range. If you go to the public housing estate, nowadays, maybe like between 300 and $400, including three days of basic medicine, which is not expensive compared to the rest of the world with a similar uh, standard of care, but if you talk about someone, say, in the central, uh, that may go up to a thousand dollars or more. Mm. So it's also a wide range. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much, uh, uh, Dr. Lam. Uh, um, I understand that uh, you have to leave us now. You're going to be with us till uh, nine fifteen. But uh, but thank you for your uh, contribution. That was uh, Dr. David Lam, uh, legislator from the Medical and uh, Health Services uh, constituency. Um, also with us is uh, Dicky Chow, uh, head of healthcare and social innovation with the R Hong Kong Foundation. Uh, Dicky. Chow, good morning to you. Morning, morning. Morning, thanks very much for joining us. Um, so, um, well, wh what do you think about this uh, proposal then to, to increase uh, fees for people using uh, A&E services when, you know, they might not necessarily need uh, emergency treatment? I think actually Dr. Lam um, pointed out a very good, uh, a very good observation that is um, patients do not go there, like go to the A&E for no reason. They mm -hmm. go there because they need the services. The mm -hmm. problem is uh, how we can allocate the resources, whether we should allocate or arrange them to A&E services, to secondary or tertiary healthcare, or at primary healthcare. That's the reason, or, or that should be the 
focus of the discussion. And actually, I reviewed some of the um, the details, like um, according to different age groups, which age groups uh, present the largest increase in percentage uh, of AMD attendance. And it turns out that the elderly aged uh, above 65, those are the largest increase in, in terms of uh, different age groups. So the problem here, uh, we can narrow a little bit. That is um, elderly who are in need of healthcare services, they end up using the A&E services. And the, then we need to think about what is the reason behind? Do they have any other alternatives? Could they uh, perhaps gain access to outpatient services in the community? I think this is um, what we need to review and re mm. we need to assess. Mm. If the case is actually the elderly do not have sufficient information um, about what what other alternatives they, they have, and they have no way to go and but to turn, turn up in ANU services, and increasing the fees will not help um, uh, alleviating this kind of uh, misuse um, as described by the by the government. So I think the the like the core problem, the core um, uh, the core issue is really how we can provide alternatives or how we can provide uh, the necessary information for elderly that they ha actually have alternatives in the community. I think this is um, this is more helpful than just just increasing the fees and mm. yeah and I and I also agree with um, Dr. Lam said that the GOPC is always full. I think that's quite a uh, we what quite a common ground that we all have. But the problem is why the GOPC is always full. Um, different stakeholders actually reflect or uh, express that it's because uh, not many new cases can go into the GOPC because the old cases always book for another uh, appointment, always book for another appointment. They do not want to leave the system because they are yeah. afraid that if once they leave the system, they have to, um, th is, there are a lot of barriers for them to re-enter the system because they have to wait for a long time. Mm. So um, this is the problem. And I think that um, perhaps we need to look into the GOPC, the primary healthcare services, the service delivery, how much, how many of the services, the proportion is provided to new cases and how many are to old cases? And can we actually um, like uh, triage or not triage, like allocate part of the old cases to the community? I think if that's the case, then we can optimize our resource allocation in terms of primary healthcare provision, um, service provision, and also the A&E services. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Just for the benefit of our listeners, uh, GOPC being a general outpatients clinic, right? Yeah, yeah. PC, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, sorry, Rainbow, did you want to say Yeah, yeah, I mean, given the views which are very consistent with those of Dr. Lam, why isn't the government, you know, listening uh, to, 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 to these thought, you know, the stream of thought? Why, why are they simply thinking about hiking fees as thinking uh, as being the overall solution? I think it's quite intuitive that, um, you know, cost and price, there's always... Uh, quite an effective or Im impactful factor in terms of changing one's behavior. And it's very easy for us to um, take it like a very, take it very straightly and very directly that, oh, if we increase the cost, we can deter certain behavior or we can change certain uh, behavior. But we should, not we should not forget that we have to provide them with substitutes to really change their behaviors. And the substitutes, I think that's the part of uh, the dis discussion part of the discussion that we're, we're, we're in. And, um, and actually, uh, in terms of the cost, as 
Dr. Lam already said that it's it's not that easy to to cover the cost of AE services because it's around two two thousand. And um, actually, we can also take reference from some overseas examples that perhaps in, in the UK, there are a lot of different measures to try to um, change the citizens' behaviors in terms of using the A&E services, like the, when they dial uh, for the, uh, for the um, ambulance services, they will have a like, simplified version of triaging um, handled by a nurse to tell them actually what kind of services they need. Do they need the ambulance? Do they need to go to A&E services? Or should they actually just go to the um, family doctors to have a basic checkup first? So they can have some health advice or medical advice from the uh, nursing um, on the phone, over the phone, mm-hmm. so that they do not need to go to the A&E services to, um, to conduct the kind of triaging um, process. Mm-hmm. And that's the first measure. The second measure is actually um, setting up a um, outpatient clinics right next to the um, A&E services. And then after triaging, they can ask them to um, go to the um, outpatient clinics next to the A&E services instead of uh, waiting at the A&E services for perhaps up to seven to eight hours. That actually may, pro- uh, may provide a better alternative for the citizens and they can help them to change their behavior. So I think that's um, two examples that um, the government may, may, may like to reference uh, when they are thinking about um, deterring or um, changing the behaviors of the citizens. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Um, uh, the, the health uh, uh, secretary, uh, Lo Chung Mao, he, he gave an example of uh, you know, somebody going to uh, any department with acne, for instance, uh, you know, with, uh, with pimples. Um, um, but um, from, from what you're saying, it sounds as though... Um, you don't think that that sort of um, uh, sort of approach, uh, attitude, uh, uh, misuse of the service, if you like, is particularly common. Is that so? Uh, I would say that it's really difficult to define or to draw a clear line. What is mis- what is like uh, um, misusing the services? What is not? Because after all, we understand that Hong Kong's healthcare system um, has a basic principle that's not depriving anyone of the medical services because of economic reasons. So we, if we are going to safeguard and uphold this principle, and we um, have to accept that um, there are not, like some of the service usage may not up to a very optimal level. Like if there is if there is really a case, like uh, if you have pimples and you go to the a and services, if that's the case, it's really not optimal using it. So we need to think about how we are going to use it because people when people uh, people don't go to any services just for fun, right? They they have their demand, they have their need, and we um, we have to think about how to um, help them to make better choices or to make better decisions. I think that's that's the goal or that's the aim of of all all kinds of measures. And, and um, you know, um, you make a very good point that there's nothing like that at the moment in Hong Kong, unlike like you, the example you used in UK. Um, but, but and you know, so um, you know, as I understand your point is, look, there's a lack of general lack of awareness um, of the availability of alternative options. Number one, and number two, those alternative options, the accessibility of those alternative options are also an issue, right? Right, correct, correct. 
Okay. We, we have um, um, a couple of messages uh, uh, from listeners here. Um, email from Mike says, uh, under a proposed tier system, he's quoting, under a proposed cases deemed uh, non-urgent could be charged fees similar to those of the private sector, unquote. Uh, Mike goes on, a great idea on paper. Number one question is who is going to be the bad guy? Qualified professional telling uh, grandma she is not serious. So give me $800, please, not the expected 180 Remember, you pay at the front door before you see a doctor. Are you going to designate a, f a front door doctor for this? Or uh, no bleeding, still breathing, still conscious, uh, no discount. Uh, great in theory, but if there are no details, how to implement uh, not a good idea. Um, uh, that from Mike. I mean, it, it has been suggested that if this um, idea was adopted as well of charging people more, if they, uh, cases were deemed non-serious, that could cause um, some dispute uh, between um, customers and medical staff. Um, uh, is, is that a concern? Uh, it's a, it's if if uh, if somebody goes to A and E department, they go through the triage system, and they're told uh, your case is not serious. Therefore, if you want to see a doctor, we're going to charge you more. Um, is that likely to cause a, a dispute between patients and and medical staff and the and the the, the triage team? I think uh, perhaps we can take it like in we can analyze it or talk about it in two ways. First of all, it's current current practices in Hong Kong. Actually, current practice in Hong Kong, we always we already have a triaging system, and for those in category four and category five, that's basically conveying the same message: like mm. you're not urgent, you're semi-urgent, so you should not probably stay here for seven to eight hours to wait for the services because uh, what you need is most likely is primary healthcare services and outpatient services. I think that's like um, what is working now, and the second part is. So um, how are they going to, uh, um, if they're going to charge them higher fees, like perhaps up to 800 because you're going to, going to use the private services. So that part, is it, uh, who will make up make that kind of decision? And for that part, I think that's why we're uh, very, we're highlighting the importance of GOPC, the general outpatient clinics, because it's also public services and uh, it's also providing a subsidized service for um, for perhaps uh, for elderly and for citizens. So the problem is uh, we're not, uh, if they have economic concern, um, they should uh, really go for um, public services and that's why we need to make it available. And for those who uh, can afford private services, I think it's really up to them to think about whether they would like to wait here for seven to eight hours because time cost is also it's also a cost, right? It's not only just a price tag, but it's also a cost. So it's up to them to evaluate or to assess, would they really stay here for seven to eight hours instead of um, spending a few more hundreds to go to private doctors? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the role of the government is really to provide them with options and how to decide and how to, um, uh, how, which one do they pick? I think it's up to them to assess on their own benefits. Okay. Another comment here from uh, listener Henry says, uh, current uh, A&E charge is too cheap. Uh, this is nothing new, but it seems the government is too lenient in their past approach. People just abuse it full stop. It should be subject to a yearly review in accordance with a uh, change in uh, living standard like uh, MTR pricing. On the extension of health uh, voucher in the mainland, uh, I think this is only part of the increasing integration and we should expect to see more. Besides, 
besides the cost of medical services and indeed everyday living is too high, evidenced by increasing number of people going to the mainland uh, to do uh, grocery shopping. This is the result of the high land price policy, which the government has not sufficient courage uh, to change in the past. It's also regrettable that only a few hospital outpatient services have reduced uh, consultation charges for senior citizens. Uh, Surely they should have uh, more social responsibility, but to ordinary people they look uh, like uh, a money grab. Uh, We're going to take a a break uh, for a news summary in just a moment. Uh, But uh, Dickie Chow, you can you can stay with us for a bit longer. Yes. Till about till about quarter two. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, We'll also be joined um, after the break uh, by Dr. Samuel Kwok, who's uh, president of the Association of Private Medical Specialists uh, in Hong Kong. Um, A quick uh, look at the weather before we hear a news summary and a couple of uh, government announcements. Uh, um, it's going to be uh, today uh, warm during the day with a top temperature of around 26 degrees, uh, coastal fog and one or two light uh, rain patches. Um, the outlook, still humid and foggy in the next couple of days and warm during the day, but temperatures will fall progressively towards the weekend and early next week. Currently, it's uh, 24 degrees, humidity 83%. Now the news with Carol Musgrave. Football superstar Lionel Messi has denied that political considerations were behind his decision not to play in a friendly in Hong Kong earlier this month. His failure to turn out for his inter-Miami side on February the 4th caused a public outcry here, with the match organiser agreeing to refund half of the ticket price. Messi said he'd wanted to play but couldn't because of an inflamed leg muscle. The housing secretary, Winnie Ho, says officials will ask public housing tenants to declare how much their vehicles are worth as they extend a crackdown on abuse. The authorities had earlier begun looking into whether tenants owned a property overseas or on the mainland to ensure that public flats go only to those eligible. Ms Ho says car car owners would face consequences if they didn't tell the truth. Brazil has recalled its ambassador to Tel Aviv in an escalating diplomatic row following President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's controversial statements regarding Israeli action in Gaza, comparing the conflict to genocide. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. A positive attitude among citizens and government departments fosters the constructive handling of complaints. The Ombudsman promotes synergy between citizens, the government and itself to enhance the quality of public administration. The Ombudsman carries out independent and impartial investigations to make a more efficient, open and accountable public administration which is conducive to the well-being of our community. Positive complaint culture for better administration. Office of the Ombudsman. I am the Little Grape, and I'm here to alert citizens to scams. When you shop online, stay alert to scams. When you date online, stay alert to scams. And when you receive calls from unknown numbers, stay alert to scams. I never get tired of reminding. I love reminding my family and people around me to stay alert to scams. Ending deception starts with you. Remind those around you. If you come across any suspected scams, call the police anti-scam helpline at one 8222 you're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say.
And welcome back to Back Chat with Rainbow Lung and me, Jim Gould. And we're going to continue our conversation about uh, a proposal to increase uh, uh, fees for uh, people visiting uh, accident and emergency units in public hospitals if their cases are deemed to be uh, not serious. Uh, that suggestion is put, was put forward as one way of uh, relieving pressure on services and also perhaps uh, uh, reducing fees for cases uh, which uh, are indeed serious or, or or someone is uh, is injured. Um, we have uh, with us uh, Dickie Chow, Head of Healthcare and Social Innovation at the Ah Hong Kong Foundation. And joining us now also is Dr Samuel Kwok, President of the Association of Private Medical Specialists uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Dr Kwok, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. So um, it has been suggested that uh, there could be a tier system uh, where cases deemed to be non-urgent could be charged fees uh, similar to those of the private sector. Um, uh, is there scope, uh, do you think, for the, for the public and private sectors uh, to work together on this? Um, if you talk about fee changes, I think that is supposed to uh, change the behaviour of, uh, you know, uh, people seeking a medical care in emergency rather than, you know, a, a budget problem because there's not lack of funds to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you talk about public-private uh, partnership in here, I think it is definitely possible because, um, you know, most of people, when they come to the accident emergency department, they, they think their problem is an urgent problem. All right, you cannot, you cannot blame the people that they're abusing the services at all. Um, because they have a problem that come acutely, and they just uh, all of a sudden something happened. They come to the emergency department, but it's only uh, up to the, the medical personnel or you know either nurses or doctors they can tell whether those are urgent problems or not. So when a person come to the emergency department to seek services, um, they would have a kind of triage system to put them into different urgency categories. Mm. If they are judged to be not so urgent, I think they can come to uh, either a GP or a family doctor in the private sector or um, the same day or the next day or sometimes even later uh, to seek medical advices. So, uh, so the fee changes in uh, applying to people with different urgency category can, can help uh, you know, identify people who are not so urgent they can come to the private sector. So in one way, they, uh, people can go to private sector on their own. Mm. Or if you talk about uh, public-private partnership in here, I think the, the government can also think of a program, maybe, uh, if people who do not need an urgent care in the emergency uh, centre in the same day, they come to a private sector, they can you know, have a program with uh, private doctors so that they, they can come to see them and even subsidized services uh, in there. So the doctor there can then actually uh, have a better, better, you know, seeing a patient consultation and a better triage, actually. If they need, uh, you know, just ordinary care, they can stay with the private doctor. Or if they actually need something more urgent than uh, just simple, uh, you know, common cold, um, cough, those kind of things they can be referred to a specialist, either private or public. So this way, they can better manage the flow of cases according to their urgency. 
A reason, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Kwok, um, why the public goes to A&E is A&E is, is open 24 hours a day. Um, and it That's may true. be that um, at, at a particular time, um, you know, other of the alternatives are simply not open. So, so my question is, are, are there any private options that offer out of, um, out of our services? Um, you, you're talking about whether those, um, you know, in the private sector or, or GPs can operate in the night time. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I, I'm thinking about your association. Are you aware of any options that could be available to the general public that, you know, you know, instead of them going to A and E, they 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 could, you know, uh, defer um, to those options. No, um, that you're talking about uh, um, perhaps a lack of uh, private service during you know nighttime or you know 24 hour service. In fact, there is even in nighttime, uh, almost all private hospitals mm. got 24 hour outpatient clinics. A few actually got emergency departments. So, in fact, it's, it's possible that people can go to uh, private uh, services, even for emergencies. Mm. Um, maybe if you talk about um, general practitioners, maybe very near to people where they where they live, uh, they may not be open in nighttime because they've been open the whole day already. So it's, it's difficult to arrange people who actually work 24 hours a day in a clinic. So the, the, it, it does uh, does occur in in private sector hospitals. They do have twenty four hour outpatient services. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what would uh, what would a patient using those services uh, expect uh, to pay? Um, I, I mean, I, I know, for instance, uh, um, if you see a private family doctor, the the uh, the fee is going to range from maybe about two hundred dollars to five hundred dollars. But if you if you're visiting a private hospital, sort of uh, in the middle of the night, what would you? Um, what would you well, uh, as I know, um, the fees are not too high at all. Mm. It would be kind of. Maybe ranging from two two hundred to five hundred, as you say, uh, okay. like like in other cases. Mm, mm, okay. Similar, okay. pretty. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I think the fee is not not um, too high for for mm. people to attend. Mm, okay. so you talk about people who who don't know where to go. They got an urgent problem. They come to the A and E. Actually, the problem is they cannot differentiate whether they got an urgent problem or not, mm. instead of whether they can pay or not. Is that right? Mm. So, so the triage system in the accident emergency departments in the HA hospitals, they can do that kind of, you know, triage the service. Mm-hmm. Then people know. If they, the, the, the problem is not urgent, they don't need admission in the hospitals. They can come to, you know, they can actually attend doctors the next day mm-hmm. or even later. Uh, uh, Dickie Chow, what do you think? Is there is there more scope for cooperation between the public and private sectors on on fees for emergency treatment? Yeah, I, I definitely agree that um, private sector and public sector they should collaborate to um, address this issue because we always uh, we we understand that actually secondary to tertiary care we always rely on public sector to provide the services and. That's no matter you're talking about in the market or for, for the citizens, we all um, think about it this way because we rely on public hospital mainly. But um, when we are facing this kind of you know financial burden or we're facing um, difficulties in, in terms of the surging demand in ANU services, we have to think a way to also um, um, to basically to, to um, uh, foster the collaboration between the public and private sector. I think this can be done in two ways. The first way is 
when we talk about we should provide alternatives for um, the elderly and for the citizens uh, to A and E services. First of all, do they want? Do we can we um, have a PPP here, public 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 private partnership here to arrange or um, to divert the um, users to private sector? I think that's that's the first um, that's the first idea or the first way of thinking. The second way is um, uh, the GOPC, the General Outpatient Clinics. We actually understand that there has been a um, General um, Outpatient Clinics PPP, the Public Private Partnership. That is to um, divert or to arrange stable patients to receive care at private sector so that to spare the capacity of the public general patient clinics for um, new cases or new patients. So um, I think this, this this can be a very effective way to uh, share the workload or share the patient load between public and private sectors. Um, I, I think what the government needs to do is to think about how to improve the GOPC PPP so that to make it more appealing to um, private sector, to more appealing to the citizens, to the patients, so that we can strike a better balance between the public and private sectors. And also that can help um, spare the capacity for new cases that can handle the caseload from um, the ANU services as well. I think this is, we need to take a very holistic or comprehensive approach to, to address this issue. Oh, okay. Well, um, as we know, the government is uh, committed to increasing the capacity of uh, primary health care uh, here uh, in Hong Kong, which brings us on to another comment from uh, from listener Ilner. says, uh, I wonder if all these measures contradict the primary health care vision in Hong Kong, which aims to improve the overall health status of the population, provide accessible and coherent health care services and establish a sustainable health care system. What are the goals behind raising the costs? who will have the final say on determining how much someone should pay. The whole triage system requires reforms. Will this impose a significant burden on taxpayers? At the same time, public education is needed to ensure that people can differentiate between urgent and non-urgent situations. Um, well, uh, Liz Ilner raises uh, several points uh, there. Um, um, what do you think, uh, uh, Dr Kwok? Uh, public education, um, so people have a better idea about, what, you know, yeah, about yeah. their own well, you, you talk about the whole system, there are, uh, you know, category of uh, things. If you talk about emergency sector, you have about, you, you, you have you put people into different uh, degrees of urgency, for example. But you talk about whole healthcare system, you talk about whether they need primary care as a prevent, preventive uh, 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 care where they, have, they can get, uh, improve the population as a whole in, in terms of health care. But the, 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 the main part of primary health care is in fact dealing with diseases. It's not just prevention. For, for chronic diseases, definitely uh, primary health care can take a big part. And I, I think um, now, because uh, the hospital authority is kind of overloaded by chronic diseases, so that they cannot attend more to the uh, urgent cases or specialist care cases. So uh, it would be good if we have uh, a PPP, primary, primary, uh, public-private partnership, in this aspect, where some of these uh, chronic diseases overloading the hospital authority can move to the private sector. All right. Of course, the government has to think of a program like the CDCC program now, where they they, they talk about treat, uh, diagnosing uh, early diabetes and hypertension to prevent them. 
or to treat them early, and, and, and also to extend the program to include more of the other chronic diseases, where people are more stable, you can see private doctors, maybe with a subsidy. So, yeah, that can help. So we're talking about different aspects of, of a big problem, which is actually a big, uh, you know, uh, puzzle pieces, you know, to mm. fit together. Mm. Mm. Um, it, it, it seems to me that one of the issues in the hospital system is that the fee is paid upon entry and then you are triaged, right? Um, yes, and then yeah. once you are triaged, you're then, you know, depending if you are non-urgent, uh, category four or five, you then suddenly realise you're confronting a wait of, you know, eight to ten hours, whatever, okay? Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Now, now, I am aware that there is a scheme, although I think it's just a pilot scheme at the moment, whereby once you that realisation hits you, you then have the ability to, to seek a refund, right? Because you may mm-hmm. not want to wait 10 hours to, yeah, for your acne, true. right? I mean... Um, yeah, that's difficult. That's a difficult bit. That may depend on education, actually, because um, I mean, it's just easy to understand that people don't understand whether their problem is really urgent or not, or how urgent it is. You know, they have, if they have a fever all of a sudden... Then the thing is urgent, but from the from the medical perspective, it may not be so urgent. You can be, you know, taken care of the next day or even the day after, or you know, seek a, a care from a general practitioner. So that that's a kind of difference in perspectives that it's difficult to handle. If you talk about whether they can, well, of course, when people come to accident emergency department, they have to wait for hours because there are long queue of people. And then come for the triage. And the triage is an important bit. I think if the hospital can, can improve on the triage system, when they come to, to have a long queue, you, you get people to triage them. You don't need to treat them all, uh, all at, at the same time. Because only the, the, the need to treat at a, actually immediately are those urgent cases, right? For those non-urgent, they can actually triage them early so that they can, you know, do not have to spend hours in the, in the, in the department and then don't have doctors to see. Okay. So that, that is, uh, I think, uh, the, the, the area where uh, that they, can, they can improve on. They don't need to, a doctor to do triage. So that's the key, really. Okay. So that can be improved, I think. Okay, uh, very uh, interesting discussion. Um, uh, thank you both uh, very much for, for joining us. That was uh, Dr. Samuel Kwok, President of the Association of Private Medical Specialists uh, in Hong Kong, and to Dickie Chow, Head of Healthcare and Social Innovation at the uh, Hong Kong Foundation. The RTHK English News Service brings you the latest news throughout the day, right here on your radio, our homepage, Facebook, and the RTHK News app. And now we're on Instagram. Up-to-date news, videos, feature stories and podcasts all at your fingertips. Search RTHK English News and follow us right now. Catching up with the very latest local and international news just got even easier. On your radio, our homepage, Facebook, the app and now Instagram. RTHK English News. And for the last part uh, of this morning's programme, we're talking about uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, and the reason we're doing that this morning is that is because uh, Singapore has announced um, that uh, from 2026, all flights uh, departing uh, the country will be required to use a, a certain amount of uh, SAF, as it's called for short, sustainable aviation fuel, um, 
um, this is um, um, synthetic um, aviation fuel or or made from organic sources um, and the requirement will increase uh, as the as time goes by. This is all part of the global aviation industry's efforts to switch to a more greener uh, model. We're joined now on the line to talk about this by Stephen Chung, who's founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association and chairman of the private jet operator Seaplane Hong Kong. Stephen Chung, good morning to you. Jim, very good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and, and good to hear from you again. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, um, so w w what do you make of this then, this, this move by Singapore to uh, require uh, airlines to use, to, well, to start using um, SAF? Well, I mean, it's very good news, right? Uh, it's a Singapore proactive approach towards reducing aviation emission. Um, but the thing is, it's going to bring up costs for passengers. It, 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 it's very expensive to produce SAF fuel. It's five times the amount of Jet A1 today. And mm. of course, it has a limited economy of scale as well. The SAF industry is, is still in its relatively early stage. It doesn't have the economy of scale. So um, on, on top of that, there is a limited of supply. Uh, globally, everybody is talking about SAF, but no one is making them. There is a reduced supply uh, or, or, or uh, availability. And to meet the challenge of the aviation industry, the fuel producer needs to um, spend more money and investing in infrastructure for SAF. So um, I think that's uh, it's, it's a very different approach to what Hong Kong has. Hong Kong actually have an industry-led approach. I mean, recently, Cathay um, announced um, that they will be using more and more uh, SAF fuel, but mm -hmm. now this is a very different approach. The government is imposing a levy, so we're gonna we're gonna see high ticket price, and it's gonna push up airline operating costs for those flying in and out of Singapore. Uh, and SAF um, is sustainable aviation for fuel, right? So, what is what is what what is actually what what does that mean? I mean, what are we talking about? What what you know you know how how does that differ from the usual fuel? Well, in plain English, it's basically a uh, synthetic fuel. So uh, uh, recycled cooking oil, waste oh. oil, uh, uh, plant sugar, uh, uh, palm tree oil. So those are the things, um, uh, agriculture residue as well. Those are basically SAF. But then uh, we, we need to um, uh, be realistic, right? There are certain, uh, you know, limited amount of, of agricultural um, uh, land available for producing food. So, you know, with biofuel sector, which is a little bit more um, 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 uh, profitable uh, uh, in the near future, that might uh, affect food security further down the line as well. So, you know, and, and leading to deforestation. So that is the significant challenges that we have to meet as well. And of course, um, uh, the geographic constraint, the production and the availability of SAF is not evenly distributed globally. So some region with more advanced biofuel industry will have better access and, and of course, uh, those who doesn't, so for example, Singapore, Hong Kong, we don't produce fuel, it's going to be a logistical challenge of importing SAF because are we going to mix those fuel or do we have a, 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 a separate fuel tank? So airport need to build those infrastructure. The shipping industry needs separate infrastructure and the air, air, aircraft also um, um, need uh, infrastructure to make sure that they are correct mixing and there's no contamination of fuel. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, like you say, this is, is, is still very much at the early stage, isn't it? I think uh, uh, sustainable uh, aviation fuel currently accounts for only about 0.2% of the jet fuel market. So, um, but the, the, I think the industry is committed to increase that to 65%. By twenty by twenty fifty, that's part of the plan to reach a, a net zero. So, is that a realistic target? Do you think? Well, I think it's realistic. I mean, look at where twenty years ago, you know, we're using phones with no pictures and 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 and, and it's not able to take videos. I mean, the, the 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 how far technology had advanced in the last twenty years. So, you know, I believe it's realistic if we put in the infrastructure and the investment required for the SAF fuel to to to, to really take off. So, you know, it, it's a good step to see Singapore um, um, taking the uh, drastic step in terms of making it compulsory and taking a levy but then it's gonna push uh, push up costs on traveling you know it's very important the competition is very tough in the region i mean places like singapore and hong kong rely on transit passengers and then you've got fuel efficient aircraft so you know for example Australia flag carrier Qantas are flying direct to London. You know, passengers have options um, that, you know, are, are, are bypassing major hubs like Hong Kong and Singapore. So, you know, we, we really need, need to be careful on on um, uh, cost mitigation at the same time balancing on you know having introducing fuel efficient aircraft and investment into the latest technology so that we're reducing costs across the level playing field so you know from from the fuel that we use to the, the fuel that we're burning on the aircraft and and hopefully uh, we, we can um, have a um, uh, more sustainable um, um, development across the board. If it's if Singapore is going to um, uh, introduce this levy, I mean levy itself is isn't that a sort of like a predefined calculation? So you're not going to be subject to the fluctuations of sustainable aviation fuel on the market. You know, surely it should be pretty, you know, um, fixed. Um, so it's a bit different. So the the the, the levy is calculated, and and it's um, it's like the fuel charges that. Uh, some of the airline charges, so yeah. it's it's um, it, it fluctuate with 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 the fuel prices. So, um, but again, this is you know Singapore is the first country in the world um, to 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 introduce this. So um, the the policy is quite clear. So it, it kind of take an average of of the uh, SAF uh, costs, uh, and then it, 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 the the cost is obviously passed on to passengers as as a form of levy. And, and do you know what that actually means in in real terms? I mean, how much are we talking about? Well, I mean, um, it's probably going to push up the cost from about 1% to 2% of the ticket prices. So, um, um, because, as I said, um, it doesn't have the economy of scale at the moment. SAF uh, accounts for, you know, less than uh, 0.35% of of, um, uh, global fuel supply. So, you know, (laughs) we're talking about really minimal um, uh, usage at the moment, you know, but now we're seeing plane using SAF fuel. You see a lot of advertising from airline in the Middle East, our local home carry here in Hong Kong. Um, they, they have been trialing and using SAF, but the, the usage is very small. So, you know, by the time we're talking about the introduction in 2026, we've still got some time away, uh, but in terms of how, how they will implement and how practical um, it is, uh, we'll have to see how the logistic will work. 
work out. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the levy is also going to be based on things uh, like uh, the distance travelled and and the class of travel, isn't it? So so you know if you're sitting in first class or business class, you're going to have to pay more, uh, or you know if you're on a, if you and more if you're on a long trip. I did see some figures actually um, uh, suggesting that for every one percent of uh, uh, increased uh, amount of SAF, the uh, passengers would have to pay, for instance, from Singapore to Bangkok, an extra uh, uh, about two and a quarter US dollars, six dollars, sorry, yeah, six dollars, an extra six US from Singapore to Tokyo. $16 $16 from um, Singapore to London, but it does it does start to tick up, doesn't it? Um, do, do, do you think that might have an effect on passenger behaviour? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, well, now we're going on internet websites, you know, various comparison sites to shop for, the, 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 of course, the most convenient time, but ultimately costs. Uh, a lot of majority of the uh, pleasure passengers are cost sensitive. So, you know, with 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 Asia, um, the competition are getting tougher and tougher, you know, with the growth of India, um, uh, you can see the revamp of Air India um, uh, and, and, and a lot of the local cost airline are picking up in, in, in business. I mean, if you look at the most profitable airline in Asia nowadays are LCCs. So um, it, it's definitely going to uh, change uh, passenger behavior. But I think uh, what, what the industry should do is to find ways to bring up the economy of scale, reduce the cost of production of SAF fuel so that, you know, we can continue to connect with with. With, with, with our loved ones, with our families, and, and, and travel. Because, you know, there's no point of pushing fare higher and higher. I mean, it's ex- expensive enough as it is, you know. And, 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 and for the, the first constraint and consideration of passengers is ultimately travel costs. Yeah, you, you you mentioned different types of economic models. Um, um, uh, Singapore's doing it from a sort of um, a state uh, central perspective. Um, um, other parts of the world are doing it from a, a, an economic uh, perspective. What's going to drive this, or or is it going to be like a mixture of both? Well, I think uh, legislation as well. I mean, mm-hmm. if you go, if you think of uh, a lot of the carrier that flies to Europe, you know, uh, Europe uh, have. A policy uh, for for um, um, uh, ensuring airlines are using more fuel fuel efficient aircraft and 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 IASA usually um, uh, the European Aviation Safety Agency have uh, usually set the bars. But uh, for 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 the for, for for this announcement of the SAF levy, this is really the first in the world. Uh, and and um, I mean, uh, as someone in the industry, we obviously prefer a industry led effort, and you know. A lot of the key player, not just airline, IATA, ICAO, they're all pushing for a more sustainable and cost-efficient way of using SAF. But the thing is, we need a wider industry participation. So from the oil company to to, to, to the infrastructure to really support uh, uh, this effort, because in real term today, SAF is five times more expensive than JA1. Mm. So we still got a lot of way to catch up. Okay. All right. Well, th- well thanks very much uh, for joining us, uh, uh, Stephen. Stephen Cheung there, uh, founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association and chairman of private jet operator Seaplane Hong Kong. I'm afraid that's all we've got uh, time for this morning morning um, but stay with us we've got news summary coming up uh, followed by brunch with Noreen uh, thanks to our listeners uh, thanks to everybody who wrote in thanks very much to uh, this morning's um, guest presenter Rainbow Lung
Thank and you. And we'll, Nick Rainbow, we'll, we'll see you next time.